Amen. You guys may be seated. So thank you for joining us today. My name is Walter. Again, I'm one of the pastors here. And as we begin, I want to make note of our time of giving. Uh, again, we're not passing the plate, but you're able to give uh, when you enter, when you exit. You're able to give online. If you're up with the hipster kids, you can scan the QR code and give that way. It's really fancy. You have multiple options. But when you give, you're supporting a mission of God and allowing us to continue to do ministry. I want to make a note that we are in the midst of raising funds for the Lot of Moon Christmas offering. Our goal is $2,000 or $2,500? $2,500. I knew Brenda was going to correct me, so I made sure to look at her. <laughs> but this is an opportunity for you to give towards that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end today. Now, as we begin, we'll move into our time of studying the Word via sermon, and today's title is Eternal Love. Eternal Love. We're in the middle of our Advent series, A Weary World Rejoices, and today we're focusing in on love. And really, in this season, love is something that we think about. We think more deeply about these words, particularly these four words that we reflect on in Advent. And I think it's natural as we just simply meditate upon, as we think about the things that we've been blessed with, the, the things that perhaps we feel like we haven't been blessed with. And love in particular is a word that it carries so much weight, such power, right? You know, writers throughout generations have, have penned countless words about it. Many of us have gone through the years of teenage angst of writing love songs or listening to love songs, writing poetry, right? Love is something that just moves the human heart. We can see the effects that love has had throughout the history of the world. Empires have risen and fallen because of love. That is how powerful of an emotion that love is. And you see, the truth is that you and I are not immune to the effects of love. You see, I think that you and I are perhaps the same, because if you're like me, you have a desire to be loved, to be truly known by people. Maybe that's not you, but I don't think that's true. I think that you're probably like me, and that you want to be loved and known by people. We not only want to be accepted by our gifts and our flaws, but we want to be embraced because of these things and sometimes despite these facts. You see, just as Advent is this season of longing, of waiting, of just waiting for something to occur, you and I live our lives longing and waiting to find a love that fully accepts us and fully knows us. Now, love is something that I think that every human who has ever existed has desired. You see, if it's true that we desire love, what could possibly satisfy this, right? There's something within us that just craves love and affection, acceptance, just purely recognizing who we are and embracing all of that. What can satisfy that? Is it to be found in a person? If you find that one person that you think the Lord has set apart from you, will you be fully and totally satisfied? If you've been married for a time, you know that your spouse is a treasure. But they don't fully satisfy that need of love and acceptance. It's not their fault. It's your fault as a sinful human that you're longing for something eternal. Is it to come from family? If you've got a family, whether you have children or grandchildren or just a large extended family, 
There's a special love that comes from those gatherings, right? There's a love that you find there. It is a different type of love when you look upon your children and your grandchildren than you felt in any other case, right? Yet that love doesn't fully satisfy you. Does it be found in friendship or in anything else? Because there are so many things in this world, whether it's friendships or things or possessions or whatever you might find that could bring love and affection to us. You see, I would submit to you that the love that can be found in all of these places is good. It is good, yet it's a pale shadow of the perfect love of God. You see, when we're looking for this love that will satisfy us to make us be fully known and accepted, we're looking for that which is eternal, the perfect holy love of God. And though the love of a spouse, though the love of a family, though the love of friends can help fill that gap, we will never, we will never be truly satisfied unless we find the perfect love of God. You see, perfect love, total acceptance for who we are and what we've done is only going to be found in God. <coughs> Forgive me as I'm battling sinus junk. I know you love to hear my voice anyway, and it's even better when it's crackly like this. As we think about love, this perfect love of God, we see so many examples of this love throughout Scripture, right? The entire Bible is about this love, you could say. But today, I'm going to limit our focus to a few verses. And as we've done, as we'll continue to do throughout our Advent series, we're going to look to the Old Testament for the promises of God. We're going to look at where God promises these things to us through the book of Isaiah. He's talking to the nation of Israel, but he's saying, this will come. And then we're going to look over to the New Testament to see its fulfillment in Jesus. And so, for our first point, our first section, looking at the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. Our first point is God's love is eternal for his people. God's love is eternal for his people. See, as we enter into this book again, as we look back at the prophet Isaiah, we've got to keep some context in mind, right? As we talked about last week, we've got to understand what we're doing here. And Isaiah is still writing to the people of Israel after they've lost to the Babylonian Empire. If you remember what the Babylonians did when they beat a nation, they took their people and they scattered them all over the known world. And so right now, the nation of Israel, as Isaiah is writing this, they're being scattered all over. They're being sent all over the known world. And in the midst of this, they're losing their land, this holy land that God gave them. They're losing the temple, the place that they worship God. They have direct access to him. They're losing their very identity because everything within the Jewish culture, within their religion, is built around the land and the temple. And so as we saw last week, as we meditate upon this week, there are broken people right now. There are broken people who blame God for what has happened. And here is God speaking, proclaiming his love and affection to them. So it's into this scene that Isaiah gives us this example, this glowing example of God's love. Look with me at Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So we've got a but now that begins this section. But now, that gives us a transition. There's something that's happening here from Isaiah. And in the previous chapter, in the previous chapters, Isaiah has tried to summarize and address what the problem of the people of Israel is. He's tried to make it clear that you have some issues here, that you have problems, and I want to make that abundantly clear to you. The root problem for the people of Israel is that they are spiritually deaf and blind. They are spiritually deaf and blind. You see, they've heard about all the promises of God. They've heard about His covenant. They've heard the law. They've heard the things that God has done for them throughout their history. And simply by this time, it's fallen onto deaf ears. That it's fallen onto deaf ears that are turning away from the things of God. You see, (coughs) they've seen all the things that God has done. And they've just missed it. They've just missed what has been going on. And so their problem is that they're spiritually deaf and blind. Now, we have to keep in mind what God's covenant is, right? If you remember when we went through Leviticus at the beginning of this year, we see that God's covenant can essentially be summed up as God is covenanting with you, his people. He's calling you his people. And if the people of Israel are faithful to God, he's going to bless them for all eternity. Keep in mind that it's not based upon their finished works or anything like that. It's based upon the faith they have in the one who has made the promise. This covenant isn't anchored in things they're going to do. It's anchored in the God who made the promise. And so God has said, if you keep the faith, if you trust in me, all things will work together for the good of those who believe. Now, Israel's left us behind. But Isaiah is encouraging them to look back to this God, that this God who created them is not going to abandon them. You see, God, through Isaiah, proclaims that they shouldn't fear because God has redeemed them. If you look at this, when he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. This phrase, for I have redeemed you, this is used within the Old Testament to mean that salvation is imminent. It is near. Now, if we think back on what Isaiah said just last week, Isaiah has told us that the Messiah is coming in the future, not today. But what he's telling the people of Israel is to take heart because your Lord has not abandoned you. You see, he uses this further language of water and fire to show examples of what should be disaster. Yet, they serve as displays of God's power to save. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Though the rivers, through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. This idea of water of a raging river, a drenching rain, an unending storm. He says, in the midst of that, I'll be with you. Not only will I be with you, it will not overwhelm you. Though you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. If you've ever seen Whitewater Rapids, you've seen the power that water has, right? If you've ever seen a fire begin to burn out of control and see it consume everything in its path, you've seen raw power within nature. Yet, as powerful as these two forces of nature are, 
Isaiah says here that they are powerless before the mighty hand of God. They are powerless before the mighty hand of God. You see, Isaiah is telling them to take heart. Weary servant, rest in this truth. Your God has not abandoned you, nor has he forsaken you. And so in the middle of turmoil and the stress, he is saying, rest your weary head upon this truth that God is with you. Now, if that's not enough, in the next few verses, God makes some more promises to them. He's making sure that it's clear to them that not only have I said that I will be with you and that I will redeem you, but I'm going to make some promises to you yet again so that you see, hear, and respond to my goodness. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You see, he says right here that God is going to provide a redemption to his people through a ransom. Now, he's foreshadowing, he's pointing to the coming of Jesus, right? Jesus is going to be the ultimate ransom, the ultimate sacrifice for us. He is the one who will pay the debt of all sin and shame for those that believe. And God is pointing them to this foreshadowing, but he's saying, when we look at verse 3 here, we recognize that he's saying that I will give people for you. He used the example of giving Egypt as ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And verse 3 is a little weird because some scholars look at this in the Hebrew and says, maybe this is talking about past tense events. If you look at the Hebrew, it could be referring to past tense usage. But regardless, God's making it clear that he will trade the world for his people. That no one is more important than his people. Verse 4 is where the promise that God makes to his people yet again appears. Dr. Gary Smith says that verse 4 is a guarantee of God's future intentions to graciously intervene on behalf of his people. See, it's a guarantee that God is going to move and rescue his people. God's grace is so great that he would move to world to benefit his deaf and blind people. Why? Why would he do this? It says so right here in verse 4. Because we are precious in his eyes, honored and loved. You see, it's not because of anything that we have done. It's because love is a central part of God's character. When we talk about the goodness of God, we are talking about his love being on full display, his perfect holy love being poured out upon his people. Now, as we look at this, we're not finished. Isaiah has a few more words to say verses 5 through 7, he wants to focus in on a specific portion of our promise here. He's made the promise and he says, I need you to look, pay attention. Verse 5, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created from my glory, whom I formed and made. So these verses are yet again a promise to God's people, but they're a little more focused. There is a little more nuance here. 
Specifically, the part we've got to focus in on is verse 6, where he says, my sons and daughters. You see, God is making clear here to us that his redemptive plan is only sufficient, only effective on those who are faithful to trust in him. It is only applicable to those who rest in God and his promises. He's saying that I will bring my faithful people together in the end. From the east and the west, from the north and the south, wherever you are scattered, you, your children's children, if you are faithful to me, you are mine and I will bring you back to me. Now, why is he going to do this? Why is he going to bring a disobedient, rebellious people back together if they would repent of their sin and continue to trust in him? Why would he do this? We have to remember the point of the nation of Israel. Why did God create the nation of Israel? Why did he do this entire plan of bringing people together, of making them a holy nation, of setting them in the midst of a place that was brutal, that was cold, that worshipped many gods, right? Why did he put them right smack dab in the center of a disobedient, rebellious place? You see, the nation of Israel was created to display the glory of God to the world. The holy people, the nation of Israel, was created to display the glory of a holy God to an unbelieving world. Why did God give them the land? Because he wanted to establish borders that would be clear that this is a holy nation made up of holy people. And that here and throughout the rest of the world, we will spread out and so that my glory, my goodness is proclaimed wherever life may be found. In the end, as we look at this, people are going to realize this goal and glorify God. Verse 7 is that promise that this is going to come to fruition. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made, I will bring them together. This is a promise to the people here in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. This is also for you and I. This is a promise to rest in, that God's love is so abundant, so perfect, so righteous, so good and sufficient, that no matter what we will do, no matter where we go, nothing will separate us from his love. Nothing can tear us away from him. And just as a moment, as perhaps even an aside, as we're here meditating upon this truth, brief character study as we look at Israel. Israel is a people who has worshipped God but fallen away and ran from him. They've done everything that they could to bring dishonor to him, and in the midst of that, they've been punished. They're being taken away from Babylon, but God has promised them that I'm going to bring you home if you are faithful and return to me. What's the point of just summarizing that, right? No matter where you are, you have not gone too far for the grace of God to forgive you. That no matter what you have done, no matter where you have gone, no matter who you have been with, what you have said or done, it doesn't matter. Before the grace of a holy, righteous God, there is nothing that cannot be forgiven. That's not to give us a license to sin, to run rampantly and to live our life and then come back to the Lord and he'll make it all right. 
No, that's a cry for us to live in a holy and righteous way. Because the God of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth, who created us, who knew us intimately in our womb, desires for us to have a lifelong relationship with him. But it begins and ends with resting in this promise. Resting in this promise that the Lord, if you trust in him, will see you through to the end. And so it's in the midst of this story that Isaiah leaves us. That he has said these words to the nation of Israel. And what we know, they are going into Babylon. And they'll be in Babylon for many years. That they will be in exile. Yet even here in the Old Testament, we see that they return back to Jerusalem and Israel. We see that God fulfills that promise in a physical sense. That he brings them home. And that for those that are faithful to rest in him... He brings them home eternally to rest in Him. Now, as I said today, we are not just looking into the Old Testament, right? That we're going to look in the Old Testament and see the promises of God and what He has proclaimed to us. And we're going to look into the New Testament to see the fulfillment of the promises that God made in Jesus. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, our second point, is God's love is his eternal plan. God's love is his eternal plan. Look with me at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. If you haven't noticed, we looked at the beginning of Mark last week. We're looking at the beginning of John here. And we're going to continue to look at the beginning of some of the other Gospels here. But one of the beautiful things that's happening here right in the beginning is the Gospel writers are trying to build out some deep theological understanding for us. The people that they're writing to, these Jewish believers, these Gentile believers, these new believers in the faith, They're writing years after Jesus has walked the earth. They're making clear the very things that Christ has done for us in his time on earth. And John here is making very clear that he did some things for us even before the foundations of the earth. As we move into this section of scripture, we see that God's showing us his plan and its fulfillment. Specifically, I think here in these three verses, we see God's eternal plan expressed and on full display for us. Verse 1, I think, is a rich, deep explanation of who Jesus is. And I'm going to try and spare you some of the uh, Bible nerd in in me. Um, If I tried to talk in depth about this, we would be here until 5 o'clock, I assure you, right? Um, When I looked at my commentaries this week, like, everything was highlighted, right? I had to leave so much out. Trust me on it. But today, I want to focus in on verse 1 in particular, because I think this carries the weight of what John is trying to express here and how this is the fulfillment of what Isaiah has been proclaiming to us. Looking here, focusing on verse 1, I want to hone in on this usage of the word, word. He uses word to refer to Jesus very, very simply. John's a student of the Old Testament, and he's making a beeline straight to the Old Testament for the readers. As you're looking at this, he's using this word, word, from the Old Testament, and he's using it in the context of God's power on display. Look back through the Old Testament, right? You'll see things like creation, revelation, 
deliverance, judgment, healing, so many other works of God, right, being put on full display. Hundreds of places, in fact, that we see the Hebrew word for word. And in the Old Testament, wherever it's used in that context, it's pointing to God. It's pointing to God's power, his ability to move and to do things. From a quote from D.A. Carson, God's word in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, redemption, and salvation. And the personification of that word makes it suitable for John to apply it as title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son, Jesus. What he's saying here, what John is doing is saying, look back at the Old Testament. Every time you see God speak, where it says he uses this word, where he's proclaiming things, that is God interjecting himself into creation to do things that only God can do. And as John comes here and he's writing, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's saying, what you're about to see is God interjecting himself into creation yet again, and he comes in in the form of Jesus. See, John is trying to make very clear here that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for, the one that was promised throughout the Old Testament. (coughs) Now, that's not just enough to say that, though that's a rich, deep, powerful statement. He's saying this word, this Jesus, this is the creator of the universe. Jesus, he knows it all intimately. From the stars in the sky and the universe as you can see, down to the smallest atom that makes up you and I. More importantly, he knows you and I perfectly. He's known us before the foundations of the earth because he's the one who's created us. See, John's trying to make a compelling point for you and I to to meditate upon. You see, he's writing this to make it clear that this incarnate God, this Jesus that we're talking about, he can be trusted with anything and everything. With your sin, with your shame, with the weight of expectations, with your failures, anything he can be trusted with. I think that if Isaiah were still alive at the time of this writing, he would be in the background screaming to the people of Israel, Jesus is the one that I was writing about. He's the one that the entire Old Testament points to. That this man, this guy, John, who is writing this, he is right. Jesus is the very Son of God. He is God coming onto this earth to move in the midst of his people. Do not turn away. Do not stop looking at the glory of God incarnate. Those are strong words that we see from John. If we're true, if we're resting in this fact that Isaiah is pointing to Jesus and John's telling us that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for, it must leave us with this question, right? If, if Isaiah has been pointing to Jesus, if John tells us Jesus is the one who has come to seek and save the lost, how is he going to do it? How is he going to make this come to fruition? Well, that takes us to some very familiar words in John chapter 3. 
our third and our final point is God's love is eternal because of Jesus. God's love is eternal because of Jesus. Look with me at John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John has continued to write, and he writes these words that uh, perhaps most of us are pretty familiar with. Give you some context to what's happening here. John's recording a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a, a Pharisee. He's one of their teachers, and he's a rising young star within the religious elite. And Nicodemus is speaking to Jesus, and he's simply asking him, how, how do I, what do I do? How do I fulfill the law? How do I live as God has intended for me? Speak to me. Explain this. And Jesus says a few words and tells him he must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can this be true? How can a man be born again? Am I to enter my mother's womb? And Jesus says these words in 14 through 16. You see, he's drawing his attention, that is, drawing Nicodemus' attention, all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament, Numbers 21. He's trying to make an example of how a man is to be born again. He's trying to make clear, this is how you receive this gift of eternal life. This is how you find forgiveness. This is how you are to be born again. And when we read this, we don't have that full context in this play, so I'm going to try to give that to us today. Numbers 21, if you meditate upon that, look back at it this week. But the people of God are in the middle of the desert, and they begin to, woe and woe is me, how bad is it? God, why would you bring us out here to die? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? You know, that same old thing they do throughout the Old Testament. And they're crying out for water in this barren place, and they're saying, why should we follow this God who's left us here to die yet again? And in the midst of their rebellion, God passes judgment upon them. That he allows these venomous snakes to enter the camp. And that whoever the snakes were to bite, they were consumed by this burning fever and they would die. And in the midst of this, they are dying by the dozens, by the hundreds perhaps. And Moses takes this, this copper, this bronze snake puts it on a staff and raises it up and proclaims to the people of Israel, if you look upon this, you will be saved. If you've been around a church for a while, you may see some of the connotations being on display. You see, Nicodemus hears these words, and as Jesus is speaking them, he's trying to make clear what's going on. See, what is on display there in Numbers 21, what's being on display here is that the snakes that we see in Numbers, the snakes that Jesus references here, they represent our sin nature. They represent literally that which is going to consume us, our sin, that it will burn us up. I mean, this is a direct allusion to hell and the, the eternal separation from God. 
The people of Israel in Numbers 21 are dying because of their sin and are separated from God because of their sin. You and I, if we are not repenting of our sin, if we've not repented of our sin and turned away from it looking to Jesus for forgiveness, we will die because of our sin and spend eternity separated from God. You see, just like the people of Israel, we are consumed by our sin. And then we see this portion of the story as Moses lifts up his staff with a likeness of a serpent. It's important that he doesn't lift up an actual serpent in there. He lifts up something that's like a serpent. This is a direct allusion to to Christ, who's fully man and fully God. He's like us in that he's man, but he's not like us because he's perfect and holy. He's righteous. He's fully God. And so Moses lifts up his staff with the likeness of a serpent. And anyone who gazes upon that serpent upon a cross will be redeemed. Just as anyone who gazes upon Christ in his glory upon a cross and says, I will trust that man, will be healed. This is a direct allusion to 2 Corinthians 5.21. This won't be on the screen. But as we look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, this tells us, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Paul tells us here, Jesus was made as a perfect, (coughs) perfect man, fully man and fully God, yet he became sin upon the cross to bear the weight of our sin and shame so that we might have life eternal. You see, what we see there, Numbers 21, what we see here is that anyone who looks upon Jesus, (coughs) anyone who looks upon this bronze serpent in faith and in trust and says, that is what I have confidence in, they will live. (coughs) This is what John 3.16 is about. It's the greatness of of the love of God on full display. You see, it is not just that God is love, right? That that is true and we rest in that. But it is the fact that he loves so much that he would give. He loves so much that he would give. What is it that he would give to display his love and win back a sinful, rebellious people? What is it that he would give so that he might have his people back? What he gave was Jesus. What he gave was Jesus so that we might be his adopted children. So that we would be co-heirs with Christ. So that we could be reconciled with God. So that we might experience the full measure of perfect love from God himself. The truth of this is, is we think about what is our response here. John Owen tells us that Jesus is but a beam or a light that is reflecting the glory, the goodness of God. That when we look upon this light, this beam, this Christ, we are seeing a reflection of God himself, the very love of God on full display. 
What is it that I have to give you today? It is the same thing that Jesus said he would give, the same thing that God gave in numbers, that is, Jesus himself. You see, perhaps you're here today and you're hearing this and you're saying that this perfect love, I've not experienced it. Maybe you have experienced and it's been but a brief taste and you say, I want more of it. Maybe you've never seen it before. Maybe you're enthralled by his perfect love and you abide in it daily. You see, the beautiful thing about Advent is that we're all put in the same position, that whether you have not trusted in Christ, whether you've wandered away from Christ, or whether you walk with him daily, our joint response is to wait and long for this God, this Jesus who would come and make all things right, if indeed we would trust in him. And so what do I have to give to you today? What I have to give to you is the same thing I have to give to you every day. And that is Jesus Christ upon a cross, paying for the debt of our sin and shame so that we might have eternal life in him if we would trust and believe, if we would repent and follow. And so today, whoever you are, wherever you are at in your journey, Today is the day that you can receive this free gift of grace from God and repent and believe. Here in the next few moments, we're going to go into a time of corporate prayer. Our worship team will come back up after that. And really here in the next few minutes, this is what I want you to do. That I'll be silent for a few minutes. I promise I won't even cough. This will be you and the Lord that you get to talk to God Almighty yourself and that you get to proclaim to him, I want what you have to offer, and that is Jesus. After a few moments, I'll close us out in prayer and our worship team will lead us in a time of worship of celebrating the love of God and what he's done for us. If during this time, whether it's during this prayer, whether it's during this final song, whether it's after the service, if God is doing something in your life, I want to know about it. You can come speak to me here in person. If you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact. This is an opportunity for you to encounter God. <coughs> so here in the next few moments, I'm going to lead us in prayer. We'll begin with silent prayer. And I'll pray for you. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you. That you are good. And because of that, we know that we can be loved. 
we know that we can be loved perfectly. Despite our flaws, despite our imperfections, despite our failures, we can rest in this perfect, holy love from you and know that it is you who accepted us. It is you who made us worthy of acceptance by the shed blood of Jesus. It is you who called to us in the darkness. It is you who loved first. So, Father, it is with confidence that these things are true that we come to you now. Lord, we ask for you to give us what you've always had to give, what you've always had to offer, and that is forgiveness through faith and repentance, that we could rest in confidence that if we look to Jesus, if we confess our sins, let us proclaim them to you, and turn away from them and look to Jesus that we can be saved from the sin that consumes us. That we can be redeemed from this burning fever that takes us over. So Father, today would you continue to give us what you've always had to give, that is forgiveness of our sin through Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open and receptive to what it is you're doing. That even now as the Spirit is working on us to draw us closer to you, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts and let us be receptive to the power and majesty of King Jesus. Lord, we are grateful for what it is that you're doing. And it is our prayer that you are honored and exalted in all we do today. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.